0: Hello everybody, and welcome to season five of the hyperthesis podcast. We are very excited to be back after our extended break uh, to do some research, visit some conferences, and do a whole bunch of other stuff with our lives. But we are very happy to be back for episode number 57, where we'll be talking from about everything from quantum Nobel Prizes to Bell's Theorem and beyond. So Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm Feely.
1: And I'm Liam.
0: (laughs) Well, we are again excited to be back for this episode. It has been quite a while since we've released an episode and we've had some mishaps trying to get things recorded including some broken computers but we are back we are recording and we have some fun updates so before we get into some intro topics that we've prepared what has everyone been up to in the break
2: well i guess it's pretty normal when the semester starts in september where we got to you know settle in into a new semester we do a bunch of trainings for maybe your uh, our teaching assistantship and stuff and try to figure out the projects and where you are in your um school year and academically you know and it it took some time to settle in with the the new students but I think if everything is going smoothly um on you research wise um I think I'm well I'm starting on kind of new ish topic which I think now we're we are at a very good pace, so it's good to to do that. You know, it feels good. I've been traveling quite a bit. I hosted a Thanksgiving dinner with for around around nine people. It was good. Liam was here, um, with us, and it it was it's, it was been pretty good so far this year.
1: I posted a photo of you and the turkey to our uh, our podcast Instagram. <laughs> I don't know why. I just felt like doing it.
2: Yeah, it was uh, the 14-pound turkey, some herb butter, you know, and some other side dishes. And I think it was, we had a good time, I think.
1: Yeah, we had some good food and some good philosophical, science-y conversations, at, um, as per usual at Feely's household.
0: Sounds delicious, no matter how you look at it.
1: Yeah. Um It's been so long since we last recorded, that it's all kind of a blur to me. I don't know what's changed since then, honestly. I am I guess what Beely said, like, we've started um, the new semester, even though it's almost half over now. But, yeah, I'm TAing a first-year um, introductory physics lab right now. So, you know, I, I run this lab where you go in and they, they swing a ball on a string and it's a pendulum and they can measure gravity. And they do all these kind of elementary... Neat little experiments to learn how labs work and all that, so that's been fun. And I'm TAing a second year physics class on electromagnetism and circuits. So I haven't taken a circuits course since like 2016. Yeah, twenty like 2016 or 17, something like that. Um, I mean a lot of it, like I remember actually somehow. So it's it's actually been really fun to TA that class. Um, I had to. We did like a voltage divider lab that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm learning a lot about the uh, hydrodynamical analogy for circuits, which is something that I don't think I was ever taught. But the guy who runs, like the the head lab instructor for the second year class, um, well, I don't know what his official title is, I forget, but he really likes this hydrodynamical analogy between circuits and um, fluid mechanics. So. I've been learning about that a bit, and I probably want to talk about it one day. But anyway, that's kind of like my quick update. My research is going good. I'm doing all this new fun stuff, and it's going pretty
0: smoothly. Um, I'll talk about it another time some more. And in the meantime, I've been also busy. I was working with the federal government over the summer as part of the Canadian Forestry Service, so I ended that um, work experience program, Uh, started this semester, of course, and I'm TAing as well, and a a course on advanced remote sensing, which is pretty good. Uh, In terms of research, that is going pretty well. I have a couple projects on the go and just submitted a proposal or two for upcoming projects, which I'm very excited to talk about once they get rolling and I'm allowed to talk about them, but they will remain secrets for now. And otherwise, I was traveling a bit, especially to Montreal, for a conference on biodiversity. And it was run by a an organization that's kind of adjacent to the United Nations, where we're trying to monitor biodiversity the same way that we monitor climate change. Uh, So it was a very fascinating and informative conference. And of course, Montreal is a beautiful city, and I think that's the closest I've been to you two uh, for a little while. So it was nice to at least be in the next province to you instead of a few provinces away. But yeah. Everything has been busy, but things are going well, and research is progressing. Very good. So um, now, just as a quick intro topic, this is a little bit of older news. It was fresh when it was first written down, but uh, I just want to remind you that the Nobel Prizes were awarded within the past about month, and I just want to talk about that. Uh, I originally wrote that something that's fresh off the presses. It's not as fresh anymore, but still very interesting. So I want to talk about specifically the Nobel Prizes in Physics, Chemistry and Medicine, uh, and just briefly explain who was awarded the prize and for what. So the Nobel Prize in Physics was won by Pierre Agostini, Anne-Louis Lier, and Ferenc Krautz, quote, for experimental methods that generate attosecond pulses of light for the study of electron dynamics in matter, end quote. So, these three physicists separately made discoveries and contributions about the motions of molecules through the production of extremely short pulses of light. And just for reference, an attosecond, uh, of which these pulses were about 250 of at their shortest, uh, comparing one attosecond to one second is the same as comparing one millimeter to about one light year. So, these are extremely short pulses. And if you want to hear more about very fast laser pulses, you can listen to our episode featuring Dean Eaton, who is currently working under a former Nobel Prize winner, uh, Donna Strickland. Uh, so, go check out that episode. Now, in chemistry, uh, we had the Nobel Prize awarded to Mungi Bovendi, L- Louis Brou, and Alexei Akimov uh, for the discovery and synthesis of quantum dots. Now this is very interesting because the Nobel Prize in Physics and Chemistry could pretty much be interchangeable. They're both relating to kind of chemistry but also physical components and in particular the discovery of the quantum dots were nanoparticles where their size determines their properties including the wavelengths of light that they emit when excited. So today we actually see quantum dots in technologies such as televisions and monitors among other things. Now, finally, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, issued by Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman, in their development of an effective mRNA vaccine for COVID-19. So, they are responsible for the research, uh, and of course, many others are responsible for the research, but they helped lay the foundation for the COVID-19 vaccine and mRNA vaccines more widely, uh, and we now have those vaccines available, and they're being tested for not only new variants of COVID, but also for other types of diseases, whether they're viral, bacterial, or whatnot. So a lot of very exciting and interesting work that went into the Nobel Prizes this year.
1: It's interesting, actually, because almost immediately after they were announced, it kind of came up in my research a bit. Um, My group we had a presentation given by a PhD student um, from the University of Ottawa, if I remember correctly, where somehow the, the, the mecha- it turns out making out second pulses is quite hard. Um, but the mechanism that they discuss that they um, use to create them her her research somehow sees caustics and catastrophe theory and all that stuff I always talk about in there. It's everywhere, I'm telling you, but. There's also another on a on a different note. There's also some controversy a controversy about this Nobel Prize because um, it was awarded to three experimentalists who did various things to make these attosecond pulses realizable. But there was one key theorist who also worked at the University of Ottawa, I believe. Who I don't think any of it would have been possible without him. He came up the theory about how to not all the theory on his own, but like the big major step about how to create these second pulses and there's lots of youtube videos on it and we should talk about it one day in some more detail um, but that guy did not get the nobel prize so there's been some controversy there because they can only award it to three people at most i believe um, so the nobel prize is great to have but it's also one of these things where people miss out who should rightfully get recognition and it's the same thing with these large experimental groups right like sometimes you get someone award the Nobel Prize, even though they had 100 people working on the project. So they should all they all get it, but only one guy's name or girl's name goes to it.
0: I know, speaking with Art McDonald once, he, he said that he sometimes wished, he, well, to paraphrase, he, he wished he didn't get the Nobel Prize because everyone thinks that, oh, you've won the top prize. You don't need to get any more prizes. So I know there's a lot of controversy and other topics that would be interesting to sc- Discuss around the Nobel
2: Prize. Well, these days, anything science is, you know, almost always a big collaboration, or it's like a big team working on, it, especially cutting edge science. Um, very little can be done alone these days. Even you know your group, the multiple people may be working on the same thing, or you know a part of the one thing. Especially like let's say Snow Lab. With by with Art McDonald, I mean it's a huge collaboration. Snow Lab, Snow Plus, there you are know, the dark matter ones, and there are hundreds of people working on hundreds of you know people working in both sides of theory and experimentation. And to me, it's really hard to really like pick someone, you know. But to pick, you know, if I am to pick someone. I would have to pick, let's say, the lead lead of the project or the head of the project, right? Like, It's it's hard to do. But in terms of theorists who get it, it's also hard to get if it's not realizable by experimentalists. So that's kind of a gray area, which maybe the, the challenge of realizing it is much more than the challenge coming up with it. But I think that's very debatable. Some could say when... If you come up with it for the like, first time, the first guy comes with it, maybe it's so hard because for thousands and thousands of years, nobody came up with it. Yeah.
0: There's certainly a lot of, again, interesting aspects of the Nobel Prize and who gets it, who deserves it, who should have deserved it, which I think we'll have to say for another episode because for now we have to move on. And we are going to do a little bit of a switcheroo just to mix things up for season five This isn't a permanent change, but it just happened to be this way for this episode, where we're we're starting with the story and then ending with the main topic. And we'll figure out where to put, how to contact us in there somewhere. But we'll be starting off with the main story, which will give a nice background to our main topic.
2: Yeah, I think during our, let's call it a practice session, we found out that to discuss this main topic is really difficult because it's, is based on basically what we were gonna say in the story, which is the three interpretation of quantum mechanics by Liam, and have knowing that before I get to the main topic today, which is on like the local hidden variables theory and um, measurement process a little bit, and you know basically the foundation of quantum mechanics as we know it and how it comes about, and it's good to get the story straight on. Well, what are interpretations that we have in quantum mechanics so with that i'm gonna pass the torch to liam
1: yeah so it, it makes a lot more sense so there's more than three interpretations of quantum mechanics but these are the three big ones that i want to talk about and i wanted to talk about them before feely got to his main topic that he's going to tell us about because it kind of sets the stage a bit better if we just started with the main topic people might get way more confused than they need to. Um, so quantum mechanics, we know it's a theory of nature that describes very small things on the atomic and subatomic scales. And we've talked about quantum mechanics many times before. It's a good chunk of modern physics research is related to quantum mechanics. Um, and we know how to use quantum mechanics very good. And by we, I mean humanity, um, maybe not me, myself, I still struggle with it daily, but Uh, (laughs) humans know how to use it quite well we understand how to apply the theory behind it and we have very good experiments to verify how the theory works however we still don't have a proper proper kind of physical understanding of exactly what quantum mechanics even is and how it works in physical reality because of this there's various different theories that describe what the physical nature of quantum mechanics could be um, and these are called the different interpretations of quantum mechanics although some of them are very, very different from one another, the idea is that they yield all the same mathematics and results that we see in our experiments. So if there was an interpretation of quantum mechanics that didn't match experiments, then it's probably not right. So the idea is that there's different ways to interpret it, but they give you the same thing in the end. Um, However, even though there's different interpretations, despite a 100-ish years of intense scientific and philosophical debate An agreement still hasn't been made on which interpretation is true and what the true nature of quantum mechanics may be. So, out of the three interpretations I'm going to talk about, the first one is called the Copenhagen Interpretation. Um, This is one of the oldest interpretations and dates back to the original development of quantum mechanics in the early 1900s. It was primarily founded by Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, whose names you might have heard before, they're two famous physicists. even though the two had slightly different views on how it worked, they're two of the big founders of this. This interpretation remains probably the most taught and accepted interpretation. Um, it's typically the first one that you get taught as a physics student when you're introduced to quantum mechanics, at least from my experience. I think when we took it, it was the first one they introduced. Um, the other ones we talk about, they don't, you might not even get taught in a class. You just hear about online or in papers and the copenhagen interpretation has four major components the first is that it believes that quantum quantum mechanics is intrinsically indeterministic so that's just a fancy way of saying it's probabilistic so even though you can perfectly know um everything well not perfectly know everything but let's say um you have a system you have a quantum particle you can't describe how it behaves perfectly like you can in classical mechanics. You can only describe um, the probability of an event to occur. You can never say with 100% certainty how a particle will evolve or respond to some given stimulus. So, you know, you shoot a magnetic field at a quantum particle. You don't exactly know what it's going to do. You just know what it's probably going to do. Um, The second part is that the Copenhagen interpretation obeys the principle of complementarity which says that objects have complementary properties which cannot all be observed or measured simultaneously. For example, you can't actually know the precise position and momentum of a quantum particle at the same time due to the famous Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So the more you know about um, one specific parameter of a quantum particle, um, imagine you know its exact, you know its position super well, the less you know about its other uh, parameter which might be momentum um so you can never know perfectly where a particle is and its speed at the same time you can only if you know one really well you don't know the other and i think we've talked about this before a few times um these are called canonically conjugate variables that physicists often describe them as the third component is that the act of observing or measuring a quantum object or particle changes the actual state of the particle itself so this is related to the famous schrodinger's cat thought experiment where the cat is kind of in a, it's kind of like a metaphor for a quantum particle so you can think of the cat as representing a quantum particle and the cat's in a quantum it's in a superposition of two states it's either dead or alive and the cat exists and it actually exists in both states simultaneously according to quantum mechanics which is very weird when you think about it which highlights the strange nature of quantum mechanics obviously a cat can't be both dead and alive at the same time Yet quantum particles can be in two states at the same time, according to this interpretation. And once you observe this quantum particle, which is just a fancy way of saying you interact with it in some way, you hit it with a laser or something, the superposition collapses to a single state. Um, So the cat becomes dead or alive and not both. So by looking at or measuring the particle, it, it becomes a specific state. And you know with certainty it's in that state. Um, And finally, the fourth component is that the Copenhagen interpretation describes quantum mechanics in a way that's independent of a person's mental um, awareness. (laughs) So there's a lot of bogus metaphysics out there regarding the nature of physical reality. Um, A lot of people discuss this in forums and other things regarding quantum mechanics. But this last point basically says that consciousness is not something that can influence um, the physical world. Um, But you'd be surprised how many people think like that, or at least not according to our current theories. It's not. But anyway. So that's the first interpretation, the Copenhagen. The second one. I want to talk about is called the de Broglie Bohm theory, which also has a few other names. Um, It can also be called pilot wave theory or Bohmian mechanics. This theory takes an opposite approach to the Copenhagen one and states that quantum mechanics is actually deterministic, like classical mechanics. So, if you happen to know every little detail about your initial quantum particle, in principle, you can perfectly predict what it'll do. You can predict what trajectory it'll follow through space and time. Um, this is nice because it avoids confusing non-classical notions like wave particle duality and instantaneous wave function collapse and the paradox of Schrodinger's cat, which are all things that the Copenhagen interpretation has. But this theory describes how um, it describes how the properties of quantum particles are modeled by so-called hidden variables, which are these parameters that um, you, we can't actually resolve or see them. So. In principle, if we could see these hidden variables, we could perfectly predict what a quantum particle could do, but they're called hidden variables. They're they're so minute or they're so we can't distinguish them. Um, So in principle, we don't actually know. What they are, and therefore we have to use probabilities to describe quantum mechanics. Um, This Bohmian mechanics is also a non-local theory, which I think is going to relate a lot to what Feely will talk about in more detail later. Um, but this is really me just being afraid to talk about it and just leaving it to him, hoping he can comment it on comment on it better than I could. And finally, the third interpretation of quantum mechanics I wanted to talk about um, to kind of set the stage is a bit more of a wild one and one that maybe more people are actually used to hearing about um, from movies and things. It's called the many worlds interpretation. And the way I always imagine this is... Some thought experiment somebody came up with. I, I don't know who, but imagine that you have a car driving down a road and it comes to a fork in the road, and there's two poss- it, it splits into two. So the car can either continue to drive down the left um, part of the road or the right part of the road as the road splits into two different roads. Um, so it can go to the left or right. If you imagine that this car, like Schrodinger's cat, is an analogy for a quantum particle. So imagine this is a quantum car and you think about what the Copenhagen interpretation would tell you, it tells you that the car would actually go down both roads at the same time. Um, It would be in a superposition of both states, the left road and the right road. And if you were to try and look at the car, measure it, the state would collapse and the the car would either move to the, it it would exist in the left or the right road. So that's what the Copenhagen interpretation tells you. But the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is very different, although it has the same outcome. So in the many worlds interpretation, what happens is that the car comes to the fork in the road, and just before it decides to go left or right, um, two new universes split off from that original universe. So that's kind of wild to think about. Um, in the in the first universe, the car might go left, and in the second universe, the car might go right. And if you are in in your particular universe, if you observe the car. You'll see it in one of the roads, not both. And so imagine that the car comes to the road and it turns left. Um, nothing. The quantum car, again, comes to the road and goes left. You just happen to end up in the universe where the car goes left, but a almost identical universe is created except the car went right in that universe. So this is the essence of the many worlds interpretation, is that every possibility creates universes which split off from the original one. Um, so we, That's kind of wild to think about, and you can imagine how many different possible outcomes there are for every single thing that ever has happened on the earth and let alone the whole universe, right? So all of these different decisions or outcomes being made um, tell you that there's an essentially infinite amount of universes which exist, and there's always new ones being created. Like if I wave my left hand right now, that's one universe. If I wave my right hand, that's another universe, according to the many worlds interpretation. I do one or the other. Um, And it sounds pretty wild, but apparently this interpretation is nice mathematically for reasons I don't fully understand. I know the famous physicist Sean Carroll really likes this interpretation for reasons. And I guess the nice thing about this is that the many worlds interpretation kind of removes the quantum weirdness of the Copenhagen interpretation. Although now you have to deal with the weirdness of infinite universes existing and doing different things so it's a give and take i guess uh but this this interpretation is a bit more popular because you see it in movies and tvs and sci-fi things all the time like star trek rick and Morty's a big one um the dc and marvel universes there's all these different like simultaneous universes you know into the spider-verse with all these different spider-mans um, they're all universes where slightly different things happened and there were different outcomes So. Those are the three big ones. There's other ones as well. Um, one that's gaining popularity is called the quantum information theories interpretation, which I don't really know much about, and I imagine Feely's a big fan of if he were to read into it. But those are topics for another time. So I just wanted to set the stage with these different interpretations, a little uh, a flash lesson.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much for the lesson and the story liam uh we'll be getting right into our main topic which will be led by feely but before we do that i just want to let you know how you can contact us uh i I figure i'll do this now instead of at the end so it's been a while but if you would like to receive updates such as what we're doing over long breaks whether it's cooking a turkey which again looks delicious or traveling to a conference or just posting memes you can Follow us on our social media. We are on Instagram at The Hyperthesis, where we post updates of when we post episodes, as well as updates when we do take breaks and even updates about why the breaks might be taking so long. Uh, Again, we are at The Hyperthesis, and you can send us a DM as well if you have questions, comments, or if you would like to be a guest on our episodes. We're always looking for people who are experts in their fields to be a guest. So if you're interested, send us a DM on Instagram, or you can send us an email. We are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. We check it pretty frequently, so you can find us on there. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find, I'm pretty sure, all of our episodes now. Uh, So you can watch the very lovely mesmerizing graphic uh, that Philae has put together and share us uh, a bit more easily. As for listening to us, congratulations on finding us in the first place, but we are on pretty much any podcasting service that exists. I can't think of any that we aren't on. We're on Google Podcast, which will soon become YouTube Music, um, as well as Apple Podcast. We are on Audible, just wherever you find us. Feel free to share us, give us a rating uh, or or a review if you'd like, uh, or reach out to us However you'd like to let us know if you have suggestions for topics uh, or if, again, you are an expert in your field and you would like to talk about your field as long as it's related to science. And now, Feely.
2: All right. I think this week or this episode in terms of the material might be one of the heaviest one, because, well, it, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around quantum mechanics in general, and this really challenged the foundation or the concept and theories and ideas behind quantum mechanics itself. This is this a good theory? Well, it's its description complete? And you will hear names in this, you know, fight or this war, this little conflict that are really similar, familiar, like Einstein, you know, um, Bohm and many other ones so this is gonna be quite interesting
1: yeah even even everything i just talked about like if you're for me i've heard it so many times that maybe i flew through it quite fast um and i did that for the sake of time but i'm sure a lot of the first time you hear it, it makes absolutely no sense so definitely um research this on your own if you're interested in the weirdness of quantum mechanics then come back and listen to the episode
2: well, uh, in terms of uh, temporal wise, I think it's quite pop- appropriate because uh, Halloween is coming up on Tuesday and this episode will be released a few days before. So there are two parts that, that's good, that's perfect for it because we're going to be touching on a little bit of the spooky action at a distance. I think that's very relevant. And secondly, this is going to be quite difficult, so it's quite scary for people.
1: I think almost a year ago, exactly, we published an episode on this spooky action at a distance, and we published it as a Halloween episode. So I guess we're just doing the same thing again, but slightly different. I don't know.
2: Well, the first thing I want to talk about is basically the local hidden variables theory and Bell's theorem or Bell's inequality. So, so basically, well, the way you want to well, you describe nature. One thing you could ask it well, um, are things local? What it means by that then is that everything that can happen only be affected by the by it, by themselves and its surrounding so um relativity or general relativity would love that because it says nothing can faster than speed of light. any interactions at all have to be bounded by speed of light so let's say time passes 1 second there is this sphere of you know the distance that light can travel in 1 second around a point that is causally possible so anything outside that cannot be affected by event that that's inside that bubble so it's basically um, locality so everything is local However quantum mechanics kind of allow in fact from quantum entanglement so so it seemingly it seems that things can be instantaneous that when you change something far away you can it instantly change something that well further than or faster than speed of light so instantaneous and that is a big paradox that people well, I think even for now, people are still debating about it. Um, determinism or or even if things are truly indeterministic or there's no, there's no randomness or everything is deterministic or is there uh, actually a hidden variable that we don't know about because things are deterministic. We just don't know about some variables that make these things that we don't understand or are there things that are truly, truly random? Or you can expand those arguments that argue on realism that are, do things exist if we don't? All right? That do, do we require observers for things to exist, or things exist independently of observers?
1: So, coming back to the whole non local thing in quantum mechanics. I mean, I know we learned about this, but how does that work? How does I mean I know how it works, but I'm trying to get you to say it. <laughs> um what is that there's that thought experiment with the mittens and the boxes and how you can you you can know information faster than the speed of light, so you can um at first glance at least you can break locality, right?
2: Well, I think if you want to go that far, sure. So um. so for the mittens in a box so let's say you have uh, a pair of mittens, you know, it's definitely you have left hand and right hand right, so so now if you don't see when I have two boxes and I put um one in each, I don't tell you how, which one I have right and and I give one to you and I take one and I go very uh, oh, I give the other one to another guy, to Patrick, and I separate you guys to go very, very far apart, right? So if you open the box, if it's left handed, you know right away that Patrick has a right hand one, right handed one. So it seems like when you're opening the box, you it's not 50 50 anymore, it's 100%. So you know. So does it mean that? Patrick instantaneously have the right one, or the realism argument is like, well, it doesn't matter um, because it's already left or right whether you know it or not. So knowing doesn't do anything, but because there's this hidden variable that we don't know, that actually everything is deterministic. Um, however, um, the way you solve it in relativity is that, well. You might know that he has the right-handed one, but he doesn't. So Patrick doesn't. So it takes time to transmit that information. And that transmission, it's bounded by the speed of light. So in a way, even though you know, but he doesn't know. So to make everybody knows, it's still bounded by the speed of light, by causality through light.
1: Yeah, Patrick flies across the universe in his spaceship and you open your box and it's a left mitten, even though you instantly know Patrick is a right mitten. If you tried to send him a mess like a radio message or, you know, whatever, um, it wouldn't it would take it would be bounded by the speed of light. It couldn't reach him instantaneously. And this is something we've definitely talked about before. And relating to quantum mechanics, in quantum mechanics you don't have mittens, you have what are called entangled particles. Um, So you have two particles, you separate them really far, and they're entangled in the sense that if you measure one of them and it ends up in some state, you immediately know what state the other particle's in. Um, I just wanted to like... This is all a lot of words and it's complicated, so I kind of wanted to ground it a bit.
2: Yeah, I think um, Bell's inequality is a more rigorous version of that, right? So basically, instead of doing it once, you did it multiple times over there are multiple um, out- possible state outcomes. So, so one thing I want to talk about is the, the Bell's inequality. That you know, it there was this idea that the quantum mechanic is incomplete and have the uh, local hidden variables, so that we don't know. That's why we call it hidden. So, if you can set up the experiment with pair states, um, or even more than pairs, but for simplicity, we say pair state, like mittens, right? Left and right, let's say electron pla- pair. It can either be up or down, electron spin. And if you measure a bunch of them that are paired, the simple version is that there are, if for everything that happened locally, there are an upper bound limit on the probability of finding specific outcome that always, always under this inequality. We call this Bell's inequality. So if we measure multiple times and draw a correlation, it shouldn't be more than specific percentage, for example. However, if things can affect um, at a distance or if that interpretation of mechanics is kind of sensible, we would find correlation that you can measure that breaks that, that basically more than the inequality allow. So basically, people actually do this this many times. I, um, that's why people start to say that local hidden variables are impossible. Which bomb mechanic, oh, that's diff, the second interpretation that Liam talked about, challenged that heavily. In fact, it was John Stuart Bell himself that's a main proponent of Bohmian mechanics. And which is interesting because um, people would say, you know, he came up with a with a way to um, invalidate determinism of hidden local variables. But it's him that a main proponent of this local locality that he said when you do that, you kind of misapply the inequality. So so this is kind of something that I will touch on. So there is this spooky action, which are basically at a distance, seemingly instantaneous affect, instantaneously affect auto particle. So, well, maybe that's true because a lot of experiments kind of point that way. And however, remember this is a statistical theory, right? So you count multiple things and uh, you perform statistical stuff on it. But one when, when is this one thing? It might be different. That's the same reason i say well people say that principle of macroeconomics well it makes sense when you look at people what when you look at it, each individual decision macroeconomics doesn't make much sense but microeconomics has to come in in the same way when you have to be careful when you use statistics however so one thing that this um, inequality or belt um we're working on was really criticized, or even before that, this idea of um, locality was challenged by this, we call it the EPR paradox. So EPR are three people, Einstein, Albert Einstein, Boris Podolsky, and Nathan Rosen. And these three came up with the idea to challenge the quantum mechanics. At the time, quantum mechanics were pretty new. Right, The new ideas, new concept, and it's quite radical. Because it's challenged determinism. So, before deterministic things, uh, let's say you, d- this equation describes exactly the reality. And there's no randomness. If I throw the ball one way, a specific way, it will land at this place every time. And quantum mechanics introduced this idea of randomness or stochasticity.
1: Yeah, a lot of, I just want to comment that a lot of the people who, founded quantum mechanics did not like it at all because of how weird and funny it was and how little intuitive sense it made. So a lot of like the EPR paradox, a lot of people who like Einstein was one of the founders of quantum mechanics. He tried to break it as much as he could. You know, he's famous for saying God doesn't play dice. He was not a he was not a quantum mechanics enthusiast, although you can't argue with the experiments.
0: I will also say it took a long time to catch on. Nowadays it's taught in undergraduate degrees. But uh, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, for example, Oppenheimer was one of the first people to actually take quantum mechanics to the North American continent. Like, it, it really took a while to really grab on and grab hold of um, physics in general. Like, it, it, it's widely accepted now, but even then there's a lot of questions with it.
2: Well I think if, liam even you you oh, even though you said you can't argue with experiments, that was Bell was trying to do because
0: mm-hmm.
2: oh he basically claimed that experiment was set up wrong or misapplied the way that should work but i'll talk- talk that soon um so basically um without expanding explaining the actual paradox <laughs> the the paradox really comes down boils down to two things so it really gives you two choices. One, is either so the description of reality given by the wave function in quantum mechanics is incomplete. Or two, quantum operators cannot have simultaneous reality. So let me explain that. So the first one, what do you mean by quantum mechanics or the wave function is incomplete? So what it basically does Is that the description using wave function, which is basically when you do quantum mechanics that this this the one of the most probably the most important equation you learn, which is the Schrödinger's equation, and the Schrödinger's equation describe how wave function, which is the basically the main variable, evolve through time and space, and how is how measurement work, because instead of having particles or having a uh, wave. We have something called wave function, that's n- not particle, not wave, but this quantity describe um, quantum uh, describe the evolution or uh, describe a state of a system. As the system can be a particle, can be wave, can be atoms, can be electrons, can be protons.
1: Yeah, you think of like waves in the ocean, right? Th- those those are waves <laughs> described by some equation called the wave equation. In quantum mechanics, these quantum particles are described by probability waves. So the wave function, it's a wave equation like how water waves are, but it describes probabilities, not actual physical waves.
2: Well, wave function have to be a little precise because wave function does not describe probability. The the norm Mm -hmm. of the wave function is probability, but not the wave function itself. It's strange when you think people are more used to, let's say, the Gaussian distribution, right? That's like a probability distribution. You can you know you can draw the the bell curve, and those are di- distribution that describe probability. Wave function is not that. It's less. Uh, it's easier to think as something that could turn into that.
0: <laughs>
2: it, it's yeah, a strange it's, little thing.
1: Yeah, wave functions are in general complex valued mm-hmm. functions, so they're not. Yeah. They're not real, but when you yeah you 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 take their modulus squared for the physicists out there, you'll know what we mean. But
2: well, yeah. So what what really Einstein the e, or in the EPR claims that or is either that wave function cannot describe entire reality, so it's incomplete because maybe there are hidden variables somewhere that are not part of wave function, so you cannot describe everything completely, or the two quantum operators cannot have simultaneous reality. The way to understand this statement is kind of tricky. The way I do it is that what are quantum operators? Right? Quantum operators are um the mathematical object that operates on the wave function. And it can do many things. Oh and operates you know, with according to Schoeninger's equation too. It can do many things. It can give you a measurement, or it can uh, evolve or um, change the wave function. So the really the way it, it kind of described in a paradox is that, well, if it's going to break relativity, it would have to measure the thing, uh, measure your system and transmit information at the same time. If you do that, you can break this causality set by general relativity. So you can so they say, well, you cannot do that. <laughs> so what they propose is basically, well what people propose is that measurement and transmission cannot happen at the same time. So like let's say if I open the box of the mitten box, I can't open it and tell Patrick at the same time, right? I have to choose to open it first and then perform this second operation. Called transmission to let other people know. So measurement is not observation oh okay measurement and transmission are, are distinct and have to be a distinct quantum operators. So um, so this type of um, hidden variable approach that has this implication that if there are hidden variables all the quantum state is already determined previously. So all that's left is to measure the state. We just don't know the, the hidden variables. It's already there. There's no um, there's no probability really. So it's really just deterministic. Everything is de- deterministic. We just don't know what's hiding under the rug that make it that way. And that's an, an entertaining idea and a really profound idea that everything is there. So it's kind of support this realism that no matter what you observe or not, it does not matter. It's there. It's, it's following this evolution by rules and laws and, and theories and equations by Schoeninger's equation. So that's one of them.
1: Yeah, and that description, it makes a lot more intuitive sense. So back when quantum mechanics was new, most of the physics that physicists did was all you know classical mechanics. So everything was deterministic. If you have a ball and you know its position and momentum, you know it's, what its exact trajectory will be um, based on whatever system it's in. So you like, you throw a ball. If you know its initial p- position and velocity, you know how it's where it's going to go. You know where it's going to land. So a lot of physicists, they were trying to take quantum mechanics and say, is there some way we can make this easy to understand? And this hidden variable theory, the second interpretation I talked about, that was the best. That was one of the ways people thought they thought maybe there's these like like you just said there's these hidden variables, and in that in that way all this quantum weirdness goes away, and it's just our lack of knowledge that makes it seem random.
2: Yes, and actually I'm getting to that next. So, De Broglie who who basically came up with the well, the first when they, he basically start, started this hidden variable theory into the description. Unfortunately, I think at the time, this Copenhagen interpretation becomes bigger and bigger and everyone's kind of support this Bell inequality and Bell theorem and kind of kicked away this determinism. So he kind of gave up on it. But David Bohm, B-O-H-M, David Bohm, he basically picked up the idea and really formalized it into this Bohmian mechanics and it's wonderful. So let me get into that a little bit. So some people call it the pilot wave theory. The idea is that there is something called special probability current associated with the wave function and it's evolution. So, And that is basically the, the basis of Bohmian, uh, Bohmian motion. That's So what it's basically doing before... So Bohm basically formalized a way to put something that hidden and integrated into something deterministic it, so uh, i'm going to try to explain this kind of hmm how should i explain it so basically if you want to make some some theory that are deterministic you shouldn't have some hidden variables that are seemingly random so the way bohm derived the bohmian mechanics he basically have this hidden variables and you can kind of Put it influence into the the equation rigorously, and that is enough to describe what's going on in Bohmian mechanics, uh, in quantum mechanics, basically. They basically support this. Okay, I'm gonna basically put the quote by Bell. He kind of commend Bohm that that showed this because that's what they actually they believed in. So I paraphrase this and say. It was in the papers by David Bohm that show explicitly how parameters could indeed be introduced into non-relativistic wave mechanics with the help of which the indeterministic description could be transformed into a deterministic one. So this description of the indeterministic of randomness can be transformed into something that deterministic. And in his opinion, that this subjectivity subjectivity of orthodox version this reference to observer can now be eliminated. You don't even need observer for Bohmian mechanics. So there's no need for observer to collapse that wave function. You can transform using parameters to transform this unknown hidden variables into a deterministic theory. That is why it's kinda of one of the beautiful things about Bohmian mechanics. And Bell is actually said this, and I quote, to show us that vagueness, subjectivity, and indeterminism are not forced on us by experimental facts, but by deliberate theoretical choice. That I, I think that is powerful. Like, maybe, because it's set in that way by this bias that things are not deterministic, it's actually a choice of theory that put it that way so that the experiment verify those. So you know, maybe people might disagree with that, and and it is is a something quite difficult. And so right now, we're not. I'm not really sure which to believe. Is is Bohmian mechanics are quite nice, you know, and having deterministic things is quite preferable because we we know exactly what's gonna be. We know the state and evolution.
1: Yeah, like. You can't have two, like, obviously it's different because cats are macroscopic objects, but intuitively you can't have a cat that's both dead and alive, right? So it's weird that a particle can be in two states at once. Where does So I always get confused about this thing with Bell's inequality. So where does Bell's inequality come into Bohmian mechanics again? So Bell's inequality, um, quantum mechan- certain quantum mechanical states violate it, which means that you can't have a local hidden variable theory. So, so can you connect that to okay. Bohmian mechanic? Because I, I, always kind of, I never fully understood it really.
2: Well, I think the, um, what the way Bell would see it is that well, it doesn't say that it's impossible. It's that what most people would say? Well, oh, because it breaks the inequality, it means local hidden variable is impossible. No, it doesn't say that it's impossible. It just says it allows action at a distance. It Doesn't mean there's no local variables. Uh, and that's one way to look at it, I think. Because let's say, so if things can happen only locally, right? All the statistical things which show this correlation, which is upper bounded by by a number. However, if things can affect others instantaneously, the correlation you will get, it will be more than that upper limit. So mm-hmm. basically, it's like something is interfering it from outside the local. Instead of everything having these hidden local variables, it so people will say, "Oh, then local hidden variable is not possible." Well, but that's not what it it does. What it does is just saying that spooky action at a distance is possible. It doesn't say that there's no local hidden variable it could still be a local hidden variable and spooky action. Or unless I I think of it wrong.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really, I mean, people still don't really understand it, right? So it's not something we have an actual answer to.
2: Hmm. So one of the person that I saw recently in the video on this um, website that is a huge video distribution platform called YouTube, so it's a video of Roger Penrose. Uh, the, the, our, very old, you know, our very own Penrose that does many, many things. But he has a really interesting take on it. So he was asked about the inconsistency of quantum mechanics. And I'm going to quote him here. And I quote, The, the way physicists usually use the Schrödinger equation is to work out certain probabilities of what an observation on the system would tell you. So that you have to, what you have to do is wheel out the, of the cupboard a measuring device. In this measuring device, you set it on the system which is evolving according to the Schrödinger equation, and it measures. The process of measurement does not follow the Schrödinger equation. It gives you a probabilistic answer: this or this or this. That's another outside the sy- system problem that's certainly outside the Schrödinger equation. And end quote. Basically, Schrödinger equation tells you how the system evolves when you measure it, but it doesn't tell you what constitutes a measurement, which is interesting, isn't it? Schrödinger equation doesn't tell you what what is the nature of measurement or what is a measurement. They said, "Hey, here's some operators collapse the wave function, whatever that means," and we describe it very well of this how state evolved, but it doesn't tell you what is the nature of that measurement. Does it does it mean like for Schoenker's cat or the mitten in the box, You it's opening the box, the measurement? How do you open the box? Do you have to open it fast? Do you have what rules you have to follow to for it to be a measurement?
1: Yep. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very cool stuff. It's very wild to think about. Um, and it's very like the Schrodinger equation is non-relativistic, right? You have to, you have to start doing quantum field theory if you want to include relativity, which is a whole other topic and a whole other theory. Um, so it's it's always interesting to talk about Bell's inequality and locality and all this stuff, but the moment you start dealing with things like spooky action at a distance, you kind of have to now take into account relativity. You can't just use Schrodinger equations. You have to kind of upgrade. So I know like I know Bohmian mechanics. Um, I know the Copenhagen. Well, I, I don't want to get into quantum field theory too much, but I know Bohmian mechanics, people have struggled to integrate it with relativity a bit um, because of this whole non-locality thing. But that's probably for the sake of time um, we should wrap things up probably.
2: Well, one of the things I want to talk about is Penrose also talk about his conver- conversation with Wigner. You know, he's old enough to, to be able to talk to Wigner in person, right? And Wigner uh, believed maybe in, well, he claimed that, well, it's not, he, not as dogmatically, but he believed that a measurement uh, a measurement requires a conscious being. And that is a very hot take, right? It is a very hot take that consciousness actually collapses the wave function which to me doesn't make that much sense because, you know, things exist before we exist, before consciousness exists. But also there might be claim that there are other types of consciousness of higher beings, but, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of thought experiments and evidence to disprove that. Figner um, was a wonderful physicist, but I don't think he got that right, in my opinion. I mean, he's obviously smarter than I was, but.
0: Yeah. Well, with that little... Nugget of thought to think about. Like, do we need consciousness for all of that? Uh, Fili, any kind of last words on this main topic?
2: Yeah, I think um, I'm going to leave you with two keywords. And the first one is realism. So I want people to think about it. That the, re- realism is the idea that nature or things exist independently of whether somebody is witnessing it or not. And that is one thing that quantum mechanics challenge or it challenge you to think about it. Do things really exist if you don't measure it? And let's say uh, Copenhagen interpretation would tell you, oh, it doesn't. It's just probability. You don't know. Then the Bohmian or maybe other ones said, well, it does. It always does. And it, it looks like probability or possibilities because you don't know there's some hidden variables behind it controlling it that you don't know. So it seem random, apparently or ostensibly random. So I think that's one th- first thing I want you to keep in mind in this episode. And the second thing is locality. So it's this principle that an image is di- directly influenced only by its immediate surrounding. So no information or cause can be transmitted faster than this speed of light so I want you to have this concept of locality what it means to understand that there's this bound by speed of light that things can only be affected by that and that causality is bounded by speed of light so that is two nuggets to think about if you um, haven't got too much is a lot of these what we say escapes you so I think this is the end of the episode I will wrap it up here I hope everyone have a good night and take care. Bye, everyone.
1: See ya. Thanks for tuning in for our first episode of Season 5. Yeehaw! Mm-hmm.